I love having the opportunity to share my story um, because it is inextricably tied with the gospel. Lord has redeemed my life and he continues to sustain my life and I love just being able to share that with people. Uh, so my life started in Saudi Arabia of all places. Uh, I, I spent the majority of my life there for 15 years um, in underground churches and just exposed to uh, tremendous injustices and that was really setting the stage for um, me to see God's incredible work around me and, and around the world and in the lives of others. And with my family there that encouraged me in my faith, I, I came to Canada when I was 15 years old, went to boarding school, and, and unfortunately that, that led me into a, a darker period of my life. I spent years away from the church. Um, I fell into a life of idolatry, uh, worshiping, career, partying, relationships, and following very much the passions of the world. And it wasn't until about after university that I started seeing how much God had been pursuing me during that time, how much he was pulling on my heart, and, and how much he was giving me dissatisfaction in the things that I was replacing him with. And after university, for the first time in my life, I gave my life to Christ entirely, fully. I died to myself and, and sought life in Jesus. And that changed everything. I sought, I sought God more and more every single day for truth and, and for meaning and purpose. And through that, God opened my eyes to all that he was calling me to. He, he called me to marry my wife after only a few weeks of dating. Uh, he called us to be parents after we got married. And he also called me to be a, a ministry leader in, in the kids program here at Westside. And it has been just a privilege and deep joy to serve the families of Westside, to, to share the gospel with, with the kids of Westside. And for all of these reasons, I have just been so blessed by the journey that I have had with Christ. But my story is not over, and, and it's, it's far from over based on what I have seen God putting on my heart. I have been seeking His direction in my career at this stage, and one of the things that I continue to wrestle with is the compartmentalization of faith. I think that is the battle that is, is strong in, in our lives, and, and certainly mine. <clears throat> it's, it, our faith is, is not something that is, is only for a Sunday, is only for the time that we are around other Christians in community group. It is something that redeems all of our relationships, all of our work, um, and all of our ambitions. And, and that is something that I have been seeking uh, for, for the next steps in my career as a lawyer. Um, so I'm, I'm asking myself tough questions. I'm asking myself about how, how you practice law as a Christian. How do you, how do you respond to the demands um, of career at an early stage um, that I'm in uh, with those calls to serve my wife and my family as well? And, and how do I redeem my relationships with co-workers? These are all questions I wrestle with as I look to uh, the marketplace and, and seek the Spirit's redemptive power in that place. And so that's, that's where my story is going. I am seeking God and as long as I live, I live for Christ. Good morning. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, it is really a pleasure. I, along with BJ, want to welcome you. Thank you to those of you who have shared stories. This has been such a joy uh, to get to hear your stories and to, to share that with each other over these last few weeks. Thank you, Jeff, for this morning. Such a gift to us that you open up and let us in that way. So thank you. My name is Matt, part of the team here at Westside. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. If you don't, grab one uh, or grab your phone or whatever and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
1 Samuel 16. It's going to be kind of hard for you to follow along with me actually in your physical Bible today because we're going to jump around so much because this is such a massive story. Um, The reason for that is just essentially that David's life, David who we're looking at today, David's life covers over 42 chapters in the Bible, not including the 74 to 78 psalms that were ascribed, that are ascribed to him. Uh, David's name is mentioned over a thousand times throughout scripture. I mean, David played just a massive role uh, in the story of redemptive history. The way he foreshadowed uh, the, the Savior that was yet to come, the Savior that the nation of Israel had been waiting for thousands of years for. David's life and his story is massive, so it's going to be very difficult for me to pack it all into one sermon. So I'm going to try my best. We're going we're to do a lot of flipping. I'll have every text for you on the screen, so I'll try my best to serve you uh, in that way. Because, because his story is so large, we're going to obviously barely scratch the surface uh, on, on his life, and, and, and especially the you know, dozens of additional kind of plot lines that encircle the life of David. But I, w- I want to be really upfront with you. Uh, right from the get-go. I don't want to pull any punch this morning. I want to let you know exactly where we're going uh, right from the outset. So let me give it to you right away. If I had a thesis statement, if that's what this was, and I, it would kind of be like my thesis statement. So here it is. Every moment of David's life that's worth emulating can be directly tied to David's pursuit of God rather than self. Said, said another way, David's greatest moments came when he embraced the reality that he was merely a tool in the hand of God. A pen through which God was writing a much larger story than his own life. David lived most fully as David worshipped God. Now the inverse, the opposite of that is, is equally as true. David's greatest failures came when he worshipped himself, when he forgot his place. When David turned his life and story inward, made it about himself, pursued his own glory rather than that of the one true king, David realized a mind-blowing brokenness, level of depravity, and pursuit of all that's meaningless. So this morning, everything we're looking at kind of really, you know, it all could get kind of pared down to the idea, the question of worship. Who or what do we worship? As we walk through David's story, I'm going to give you three examples of times that David worshipped God and three examples of times that David worshipped himself. In each of these, in each of the six, we're going to look at the implications for us and then we're going to respond. But let me just, again, really up front with you, why I think this is so important for us. See, I know that many of us come in here, we come from different places. Some of us maybe just, you know, wandered in here, we're just checking this out, don't really know what this whole church thing is really about. But here's what the Bible makes clear to us. Every single one of us has been presented with the exact same options as David. Every single one of us gets to decide, has to decide, is actually forced to decide who we will worship. Our default position is to worship self. But the worship of God is in front of us as well. This question of worship is one that every human being has to answer. And I'm hoping that we will discover this morning what David did. That there is nothing, nothing on earth more worth pursuing than God himself. There is nothing more satisfying to us than the one true king. There is nothing more life-giving than for you and I to simply offer all that we are and all that we have to be poured out, spent, used up for the sake of knowing God. So that's what I've been praying. We'll see this morning. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump into David's story. Father, God, it's with humility that we've come before you this morning. God, as you've already made so clear to me uh, today, that I I bring nothing to this conversation of value. God, your sons and daughters here in this room and those who don't yet know you, they don't need to hear from me today. They need to hear from you just as I need to hear from you. So God, would you meet us? We come boldly before your throne because because the price that is paid for us was so great, God, that it was so extravagant that we just want to run to you, run before you and ask for your help this morning. So God, would you please meet us in your mercy, in your grace. Lord, we are going to praise you for eternity, for the ways that you relentlessly have showered grace on our lives. 
Father, we can't wait for that, but, but in this time, would you just once again show yourself faithful? Meet us here, God. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. All right, so 1 Samuel chapter 16. The story opens with God speaking to a prophet named Samuel. Now Samuel had been grieving, he'd been mourning because the current king of Israel, a man named Saul, had broken covenant with God. 1 Samuel 16 verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. All right, so Samuel is sent by God to a man named Jesse. He goes to look over Jesse's eight sons for a new king uh, for Israel. After he's looked at seven of the eight and God's not, you know, given him clarity on any of those, we read this in 1 Samuel 16, 11. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Not unlike myself. If, if you're looking for a, just an image of that, I mean, you can't really tell from there, but if you're up really close, I'm one of those, very handsome, for, but you have to be really close. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So God appoints, and Samuel anoints this shepherd boy named David as king over the people of Israel. But imagine this. I want us to picture this moment for a second. Imagine David, shepherd boy, ruddy and handsome, on his knees, or oil just being poured over him. Imagine it running down his head, running down his back, and covering his face. His face that was, would have been just contorted with confusion. Why? Well, because God had already appointed a king for Israel. Everybody knew that God had put Saul in place as king and he was still on the throne. But in verse 14 of chapter 16, we're told that God's spirit had now left Saul and Saul was actually being tormented by a harmful spirit of the Lord. Now Saul's torment leads to an interesting twist in the story as he seeks out someone to comfort him and is introduced to this shepherd boy named David who was a very skilled musician. See, every time David comes to Saul and plays his harp for Saul, this harmful spirit leaves Saul and he finds relief. So naturally, David found great favor in the eyes of Saul and entered his service on an ongoing basis. So that's kind of like scene one. If this were a play, that's scene one, act one, well, maybe act one and two, and then the curtain drops, the curtain lifts, and we have a whole new picture in front of us. Verse seven, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. This next event in David's life is probably the most famous and opens the chapter for us. Now, here's, here's the backdrop. So the nation of Israel is at war with another nation, the nation of the Philistines. The Philistines have come and they've actually set up camp in land belonging to Judah. So there's war, there's war in the land and the tension is thick. The Philistines, however, are offering the Israelite nation a different way forward than all out open war. They're offering a different solution. They've taken their very best warrior, a giant named Goliath, they've sent him to the front to face a single Israelite, winner take all. Now, this was uh, an, an appropriate way, an allowable option to decide a battle in those days, but it wasn't always honorably played out. Oftentimes, especially if your man was losing, uh, one of the nations would rush the battle lines before the fight was over and all at war would break out anyways. So everyone was noticeably on edge. In fact, the Israelites were so terrified by this one man, Goliath, that we're told in 1 Samuel 17, 24, that all the men of Israel, that's a big statement, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So David shows up. Shows up in the Israelite camp just in time to hear Goliath and the Philistines mocking Israel and her God. But unlike the rest of the men of Israel, David, instead of being filled with, with fear, is filled with anger. David personally, personally wants to shut the mouth of this giant. 
This is where we get the famous picture of, or, or excuse me, uh, word, of, word of David's courage at that point uh, went to Saul and Saul called David to himself and eventually Saul allowed David to fight Goliath which is where we get the picture of, of David trying on Saul's armor and opting instead just for his sling. We know the rest of the story, right? David goes, he selects five stones and walks out to meet Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, 43. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. All right, David runs, all out sprint. He charges Goliath, he rushes at Goliath and what does he do? He sinks a stone right into the middle of Goliath's forehead. Then he takes Goliath's massive sword, he cuts off his head and the Philistines flee. Now, Despite the many popular anecdotes that have been given for what this stories mean and how this relates to our lives, this is not a story about us wearing our own armor. This is not a story, an analogy about us believing in ourselves enough to take really extreme risks. This isn't uh, even a story about us transcending our circumstances, about you know, facing the giants that we all have in our lives and conquering them. No, this story isn't about what people can do at all. It's a story about what God can do when men and women offer themselves to him in worship. It's a story about what God can do, what God does. Listen, as David confronts Goliath, he wants nothing more than to pour out his life as a sacrificial offering to God. David has no fear because David's not concerned about himself. He's not afraid of losing anything. David loved the God of Israel and was motivated by a passion for his name. He wasn't about to stand idly by while his God was mocked. David was marked by faith and fearlessness because his life was of little value to him compared to the value of the God that he worshipped. And and right here is where we see the very first thing that happens to us when we direct our worship toward God. We, like David, are freed from the fear of loss. Those who worship God, those who worship God instead of self, do it because they have found that God is worth infinitely more than they are. Those who worship God do it because they found that they serve their highest purpose when they give everything they have and everything they are for his sake instead of their own it's the highest position for them now you can't take anything from a person like that you cannot take anything from them a person who worships God alone is entirely secure in light of who God is who we are what we've done what may or may not happen to us becomes entirely inconsequential. Now fear and anxiety, fear and anxiety mark our culture, they mark our city, they mark many of our lives. They're everywhere because the worship of self is also everywhere. And it makes perfect sense. If you're worshiping yourself, if you're pouring yourself out for you, for your sake, for your glory, for your life, for your own ends, you should be very afraid because you can't control a single thing in your life. Those of us who've been given uh, the gifts of maybe a chronic illness or something along those lines or the loss of loved ones or had everything taken away or wiped out, you know this. Fear and anxiety marks us because 
the worship of self marks us. But when God's glory is our highest aim, nothing of eternal significance can be taken from us. Nothing. All right, David's story continues. He's killed the giant. All of a sudden, David has become a celebrity. The women are singing about him. The men want to be him. And Saul hates him. Just hates him. In fact, on several occasions, as David was playing his harp for Saul, the king rose up and tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. Eventually, Saul's desire to kill David becomes public knowledge and David runs. Six chapters into David fleeing from Saul, the pursuit comes to a head and we see a second example of David giving his life as an offering to God. A second example of his worship of God alone. So in 1 Samuel 24, Saul takes 3,000 of his best men into the wilderness to go kill David. At one point, Saul headed into a cave. The text says to relieve himself. And it actually happened to be the exact same cave that David and his men were hiding in at that moment. David's men are understandably excited as they believe that this is finally the moment of their vindication. That God is at last going to bring Saul to justice. This is the moment that David will finally take his rightful place as God's anointed king. He will kill Saul and all will be right with the world. But notice David. 1 Samuel 24 verse 4. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now, this is a hard a uh, hard aspect, a hard picture of this story for us to grasp because most of us haven't run for our lives like this. Most of us haven't been chased away from our families and our homes because someone wealthy with a lot of power and influence was sick. I mean, just sick with a desire to kill us. Most of us haven't experienced that, but imagine for a second, just do your best and imagine for a second you had Imagine you've lost everything. Literally everything has been taken from you because of this ultimate kind of injustice. This person that just wants you dead. Imagine this person who has so terrorized your life one day winds up in front of you helpless. Helpless. You can do anything you want to them. What would you do? I mean, what makes sense here? This person's threatening your life, threatening everything you know about life and the world. What makes sense? I mean, if ever murder was called self-defense, this was it. This could be that moment. But David, but David doesn't seem to care about his upcoming promotion to king. He doesn't seem to care about all the wrong that's been done to him. He doesn't even seem to care about preserving his own life. So what does David care about? In this moment, we see that David is infinitely more concerned with what God desires than with what he desires. Listen, even though God had already anointed David as king, even though the people loved David and they would follow David, even though David has all the gifts he needs to step out and take the kingdom for himself, David refuses those desires and will not come out of hiding until God prepares the way for him. David is in essence saying, I would rather die in this cave than step out and take what God has not yet given me. His heart couldn't even stand it that he cut the robe of Saul. What right does he have to do that? None. personal ambition was dead to David because his desire was set on God instead. As far as David was concerned, no outcome of his life, no outcome of his life could be considered failure as long as he remained submitted to his God. Which is the second thing that worship of God does to us. It frees us from the fear of failure. 
and this, I mean, this cuts right to the core of our culture and the core of our hearts and our desires. Can you imagine being freed from the pressure to succeed? Can you imagine that weight being lifted off you? We're constantly driven to make much of ourselves, to assert ourselves, to defend ourselves, to promote ourselves. We live in a world that praises men and women who can be described as self-made. We celebrate people who dream big dreams and then give their lives to make those dreams reality. We worship those who worship themselves because we believe that we are worthy of worship. But hear me, we do this at the expense of our own lives. We do this at the expense of all that we were created to be. David was able to let Saul live on numerous occasions because David wanted nothing more than to be used of God as God chose, no matter what that meant. David worshipped God and that freed him from worshipping himself. Listen, God wants more for you. God wants more for you than simply what you can dream up. He wants to do more than just give you the temporary things that you desire so much. God's plan for you, what is it? Well, he wants to make you obedient. He wants to turn you into the image of Jesus. Why? Because he wants to promote you to the highest position known to any human being. He wants to share himself with you for all eternity. He wants to give himself to you forever. Everything is yours if you are in him. So pursue him. Okay, so far we've seen that the worship of God frees us from the fear of loss and also from the fear of failure. Let me give you one last example of David getting it really right. So the story continues, Saul dies and David becomes king. Now the kingdom was divided when David took over. There's a lot of battles fought, a lot of really good uh, and helpful plot lines throughout that story that we just don't have time for today. But one more that I love is the story of 2 Samuel 6. Go ahead and turn there if you like. 2 Samuel chapter 6 when finally the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to Jerusalem. Now for Israel, the ark was a real representation of God's presence with them and his hand of blessing on them. And because David so passionately pursued the presence of God, he simply could not restrain himself in this moment. The ark being brought into the holy city, the city of God. He could not restrain himself. He goes a little bit crazy. He's described as leaping and dancing, literally whirling in front of all the people. David's coming undone here in 2 Samuel 6 and he's celebrating in a way that would have been appropriate for for maybe a young girl but not so much a king. Now think about this for a second. I know we like this picture of David. If you've grown up in Sunday school, you've seen him, you know, kind of partially clothed and dancing and it's a very fun picture. Think about this. Imagine somebody who led us, a leader, someone who led, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Someone who was very well respected. Imagine him out in public acting this way. We too would be extremely uncomfortable. We would tell him that's, that's a little bit unbecoming. That's inappropriate for someone like him to do. And it was no different in David's day. In fact, an ex-wife of David's, I told you, it's a long story. One of his ex-wives, Michal, uh, a daughter of Saul, is recorded as actually despising him in her heart when she saw him acting this way. 2 Samuel 6, 20, let me read it for you. And David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Now, that's ancient sarcasm, if you didn't catch it. It's beautiful, this is a beautiful thing. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. 
And I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. Because David desired God more than he desired anything else, his life was marked by reckless abandonment of his own self-image. The fear of man lost its grip on David because the fear of the Lord was there instead. The third thing we see that the worship of God does is free us from the fear of man. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the basis for all of our wisdom literature, the five books of wisdom literature that we have in the scriptures. They're all built within the context of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it is the beginning of wisdom because it puts everything in right perspective for us. It allows us to see there is only one, please hear me, there is only one opinion of you that counts. Those who live entirely to God don't live under the weight of other people's perceptions. And we live in a culture that tells you that you absolutely live under the weight of people's perceptions and what they think of you is, is how you're defined as valuable or not so much. But God's word tells the exact opposite. Listen, if, if you're crippled, as, as I know many of us often are, if you're crippled by comparison, by comparing yourself to other people, you are living outside of the fear of the Lord. You are living in a state of what the Bible would call foolishness. If your heart hinges on what you saw on Instagram or Facebook or what you see around you or what other people have that you don't have or how other people think about you or what other people say about you, you are actually living, according to the Bible, and I mean this as gently as I possibly can, in a state of foolishness. You're marked by the fear of the man, not the fear of the Lord. Now, after seeing these three examples of great moments of worship in David's life, it would be easy for us to think, okay, David's our hero. Let's live like David. Let's go be like David. But let's not make that mistake today. So far in, David, we've seen, in David's story, we've seen three implications of him worshiping God. We're freed from the fear of loss, the fear of failure, and the fear of man. Now let's look at three examples and their implications of worshiping self that we see in David's story. The first one that I'll point you to is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the story opens this way. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, the first thing to notice here is the subtle indictment of David. The author of these words records this as the season when kings would normally go out to battle and then tells us that David sent all of Israel, but himself he stayed at home. Now we're being asked to read between the lines here and see that David should have gone with his men. Now please understand, David... I mean, David had done his fair share of fighting. David was a warrior among warriors. He and his mighty men were feared by all who heard about them. David had killed uh, his fair share of people. But regardless, David was thinking about David here and opted for R&R &R instead of being, you know, being obedient to the work that God had called him to. So the story continues in verse 2. It happened... Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David's chilling in his housecoat, right? I mean, I assume I, there's no reason for him to be out of his housecoat. No one's really around except for him. I just imagine him kind of walking on his roof, big wineskin, full of wine behind him, just his cup being, you know, filled up over and over again, middle of the day, why not? That's all subjective. I'm inserting all of that. <laughs> it's how I see it. And then all of a sudden, something catches his eye. A beautiful, naked woman bathing on a nearby roof. Now there's a choice to be made here for David. Now, first understand, see, David, uh, he'd been down this road many times before. 
As king, there wasn't a lot that was kept from him. David had had his fair share of women. Uh, any rules that there were for David were, were pretty hard to enforce. If the king wanted something, he primarily got it. So he asks who this woman is and is told that she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, a man that David would have known personally, a man that David would have fought with for years, a man that would have been faithful to David. So you can see David, David's wheels just turning and then the decision in verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. All right. So Bathsheba, probably missing her husband a great deal. I mean, her husband's off at war. She probably is heartsick for him. She's summoned by the king, and in the ultimate abuse of power, position, and authority, is compelled to go to bed with him. She gets pregnant and sends word back to David. Now, again, King David has a decision to make here. So he brings Uriah home from war, off the battlefield, to the palace, gets him drunk, and tells him, go home to your wife, hoping that Uriah will sleep with his wife and the pregnancy will become much less suspicious. But in a surprising twist, Uriah refuses to go. He refuses to go enjoy the comforts of home while the men are still bleeding and dying on the battlefield. Uriah, drunk, has enough wisdom to know he won't do this thing. Not while his brothers are dying. Uriah here reminds us of a much younger David. You know, when David stood before Saul and the text tells that he was more righteous than the king, well now we're seeing the very same thing in Uriah. So at that point David realized he's in trouble. He won't be able to keep what he did with Uriah's wife a secret. So he sent Uriah back to, to the war with a message, carrying a message to Joab, the commander of the army, telling Joab to make sure Uriah dies in the battle. What happened to David? What happened? Well, this whole story is often blamed on, you know, raging lust, a few moments of weakness, a string of bad decisions, but the reality is much worse than that. David began to worship himself instead of God. And the first implication we see here of self-worship is that it enslaves us to the lusts of our flesh. Now I know David's not alone in this. Granted, most of us probably uh, haven't covered up adultery with murder. Probably not most of us. But all of us, all of us, have made our own desires paramount at one point and have felt the sting of David's sin. All of us, according to Jesus, have committed adultery and murder if we've ever allowed lust and hate to linger with us for a while. In fact, there are some of us here who are completely enslaved to the lust of our flesh. We've been worshiping ourselves for so long. I mean, they just have such a hold on us, that porn addiction that's just been there forever now. I mean, there's some of us here who just are completely indifferent to it by this point. There's some of us who have been harboring anger in our hearts for so long that we hardly even notice it anymore. Listen, we are David, lazy, on the roof, letting evil live. But hear me, lust and anger, they aren't our primary sins. Self-worship is. We opt for instant gratification instead of waiting for the eternal pleasures that exist only at the side in the presence of God. And David, I mean, he made this mistake over and over again. For example, the time that he forgot that everything he had was from God and decided he wanted to do God a favor and build him a house as beautiful as his own palace. David wanted to build God a temple, which, okay, this sounds great at first, except that his motivation was all wrong. See, King David, in his arrogance, tried to switch places with the king of kings. He mixed up the roles of benefactor and beneficiary, and God would not have it. A temple would be built, but not under those circumstances. God rebukes David for this and reminds him that he has nothing to offer God that isn't already his. 
The second thing we see is that worship of self enslaves us to pride. You and I, we live this whenever we mistakenly believe that God needs us or our money or our gifts or our life or our testimony or whatever more than we need him. This is when we make the exact same mistake as David. It's such a perversion and it's so very common. Or there was the time that David decided that he would hold a census. Now, we're not told outright why the census was so sinful, but it seems that David just simply wanted to quantify his own glory. He wanted to count the people who were subject to him. The gifts that God had given him went straight to his head, and he wanted to use them for his own sense of self-worth. His identity was completely wrapped up at this point in the gifts God given. He was trying to justify himself through the things he had accomplished. And this sin was so grievous to God that it led to the deaths of 70,000 people. Again, we see David opting to worship himself instead of worshiping God. The third implication that we see of self-worship then is that it enslaves us to justify ourselves outside of Jesus. Those who opt for the worship of self are constantly looking for ways to justify. This is what we do. In our culture, as I said at the beginning, we have a couple of choices. Our default position is the worship of self. We can also choose to worship God. Biblically speaking, those are our only two options. So for those who choose the default position to worship self... What they do is they constantly look for ways to justify this. And the easiest way for us to justify our self-worship is to take credit for the gifts that God's given us. It's to take ownership of them and, and make believe that we had something to do with it. But every time we attempt to justify ourselves through our own works or to find our identity in anything outside of God, we step outside the core of our faith and and. We step away. We step away from the greatest gift that God extends to men and women. The gift of a new identity in Jesus that you had nothing to do with. That isn't based on who you are, what you brought to the table, or what you can do, or the gifts you have. It's based entirely on him and his grace forever. All right, so we've seen some fantastic moments in David's life, and we've seen some that are also not as fantastic. We've seen that everything hinged for David on whether he worshipped God or worshipped himself. We've seen that the worship of God frees us from the fear of loss, from the fear of failure, and from the fear of man, while worship of self enslaves us to the lust of our flesh, to pride, and to justify ourselves outside of Jesus. Now here's the reality that I hope, that I just hope is becoming clear to you as we've been looking at David's story. The extent to which David poured out his life as an offering to God, the extent to which David worshipped God, like if we can be honest with ourselves, it puts many of us to shame, puts me to shame. On the other hand, the extent to which David took his offering back from God and worshipped himself, it simply echoes our story. It echoes my story. We've all been to these places. We are no better than David. In fact, we have a much easier time, generally speaking, relating to his sin than relating to his piety. And right here, right here, is what I love more than anything about the story of David. This is why the story of David is so close to my own heart and why I go back to it over and over again. In spite of everything we've seen, there was a description given to David that brings me not only hope, but it brings me incredible joy. A description that encourages my heart at the deepest Level David was called a man after God's own heart. How could that be possible? How could a man that broken be called a man after the heart of the only holy, righteous, perfect being in existence? How could it be that a man like that could be welcomed into the presence of the one true king? How can David be a man after God's own heart? I suppose there are a lot of things we could look at. We could look at David's love love of God's word, of God's law. 
We see those very clearly through many of the psalms that he wrote. But I think the answer is even better than that. In everything we've seen, through David's entire story, he sought God. Even, especially in his sin, David sought God. Every one of those examples I gave you where David worshipped himself, every one of those was followed and has recorded heart-wrenching repentance on the part of David. David's story is one of brokenness. He wasn't perfect. He was a massive disappointment. He became an inept father. His son raped his daughter. His other son killed his brother. And that son chased his dad, David, off the throne. And David wasn't restored to his, his throne until that son was brutally murdered. David failed. We all have failed. But in spite of his failure, David had enough faith enough to lean hard on the grace of God. For example, let me read you the words that David penned after what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah. I'll just read a few, a small portion of this psalm. And this psalm, by the way, is very close to my own heart. I, uh, I've made a habit, and I've, 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 I've taken this from Norm, our lead pastor, but I, I've made it a habit for myself as well to, to read this psalm in its entirety every time before I preach. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The most important thing for us to see in David's repentance is his recognition that his primary sin was against God. David forgot who he was. David worshipped himself. Idolatry was the root of all of David's brokenness. We also have David's prayer of repentance recorded in 2 Samuel 7 after he was blinded by his arrogance and after David took the census, we're told in 2 Samuel 24.10 that David's heart struck him just like after he cut Saul's robe, after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Every time your heart strikes you, that's a gift to you from God. That's the Holy Spirit at work convicting us, and that's what we see in David. David was a man after God's own heart because David pursued God even, especially, especially in his ugliest, his darkest moments. David's repentance, just like David's reign as king, points to the one who makes our repentance possible, King Jesus. Listen, Jesus is the one true king. David was a shadow of the great king to come, and today, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and we are his servants. Because David was called a man after God's own heart, we know that you and I are not too far gone. We too, you, can be called a woman after God's own heart. You can be called a man after God's own heart. How? By pursuing our king. Run after our king. Run after Jesus. Seek him and nothing else. Lay every sin and every, every idol aside for the sake of knowing him. For the sake of gaining him. 
But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that until God finishes his work in us, our worship of him, our pursuit of our king will be imperfect. We will fall. We will fail. But in every imperfection, in our ugliest, in our darkest moments, may our lives be marked by joy-filled, joy-filled and broken-hearted repentance, the reward of which will be God himself. Then we will echo the words of David in Psalm 18, 1-3, where he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. David's story ends with David's body failing him. The text actually tells that David couldn't get warm no matter how many blankets they put on him. David finished his life extremely cold. His investments in this life, his worship of self ultimately was brought to nothing. But David's sin was paid for. David's sin was redeemed. In fact, Bathsheba bore a son to David called Solomon. And Solomon was a direct descendant of Jesus himself. An amazing picture of grace. Hope, forgiveness, redemption. These are what are held out to each and every one of us today. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you, O oh God, for your word. Thank you, O oh God, for the work that you alone can do in our lives. Thank you, God, for the times when our hearts strike us. God, I pray for those here who maybe, who maybe that feeling of being struck in their hearts by your spirit is, is, has been gone for a long time. I pray, God, that you would soften them. I pray, God, that you would create in them a clean heart and renew a right spirit within them and, and restore to them the joy of your salvation. I pray that for all of us, God, and for those here who don't yet know you, I pray, God, that today would be the day that they turn from worshiping themselves and turn instead to worship you, that they would place all their faith, hope, and trust in you, that they would experience the great joy of having every moment of darkness and every moment of glorious light redeemed for the sake of your glory and your name. Would you help us with this, God? Would you save many in our cities? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.